0: Welcome to The Purposeful Project. We help entrepreneurs for free. On The Purposeful Project podcast, we share real-life stories from some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. We like to think our podcast will provide mentorship to those that need it and give you access to the knowledge you need to start and scale a business. To hear these incredible stories, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can simply visit PurposefulProject.com. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. I wonder if we could start off the podcast by you kindly telling my audience a little bit about who you are.
1: Sure, Simon. So um, my name is Patrick Sang. I'm the chairman of the Sangs Group. We're a family office based out of Hong Kong. We're trying to focus family office investing into early stage ventures, and then we take the companies public. Um, so obviously, I make investments, direct investments into private companies, predominantly tech companies. Um, I'm a global investor, uh, global citizen, sorry, like yourself. So uh, I live between London and Hong Kong, um, and we invest you know, everywhere from the US to Hong Kong, to China, to the UK, to Europe, different places. Um, and I'm very happy to be on the show because uh, like yourself, I'm also a podcast uh, host, um, prior to say it, um, I have a show called Anything Is Possible, which Simon's gonna be proudly on season two. Uh, we did season one in uh, 2020, now it's 2021, uh, we had 19 guests, uh, very happy to have Simon on inspiring us about uh, entrepreneurship and why he's doing what he's doing, um, and I agree with all the stuff that he talks about, and um, it's great to be here to share more knowledge.
0: Thank you so much, Patrick. And guys, if you, uh, if you want to listen to Patrick's podcast, the links are below. I suggest you don't listen to this podcast. Press pause and go listen to his. I have been consuming his content and enjoying it. Be patient. Listen to the whole thing. Absolutely brilliant content worth listening to. If you want to be an entrepreneur, I know most of my audience do, you'll get a lot from his content. So Patrick, thanks for coming on my podcast show after letting me be on yours. Now, can we start off, I wonder, by talking a little bit about how did you end up investing in businesses? How, how did you end up up being interested in entrepreneurship was it something in your family that kind of was always there or was it something you've self-taught how has it come about that you're doing what you're doing today
1: okay so that's a series of very uh complex questions i'll try and dissect it one by one if i forget you need to remind me so our families a rich so i was actually i was actually born and raised in belfast northern ireland which is part of the uk a lot of people try to disagree with that my family's originally from Hong Kong, so we're Hong Kong Chinese. We've been in Hong Kong for, I think, 18 generations. So we're from the New Territories. Our family comes from a history of farmers, so we weren't you know, wealthy or anything by a long way in the old days. And my great-grandfather, um, who grew up during the colonial times in the UK, he had like a pigtail uh, from the... Uh, meaning from the Qing dynasty, and he couldn't read or write. And uh, he realized that the power of the pen is more powerful than the power of the sword. So he made sure that even though we, we weren't wealthy in any means, um, he made sure that my grandfather, who was the eldest child or the eldest son, um, he made sure that he at least got some education. So he was educated to around 11, 12. He only had three, four years of, of education. And my grandfather managed to reach out to um, Kowloon in the, you know, outer city in, in Hong Kong at the time. Worked for the Royal Navy at the time, and he had an opportunity to move to the UK. So in 1956, he took a boat um, from Hong Kong, uh, ended up in Liverpool, and um, he got here. Worked for maybe five, six years as a waiter in a Chinese restaurant. And then he saved up enough money, borrowed some money and started up his uh, new venture, which is a restaurant. And eventually he opened up maybe like 30, 40 restaurants at one time in the Northwest of England and became very successful. And then he started to invest into real estate in the UK, Hong Kong. And uh, he started to make the big money in the nineties when China opened up and he started to invest into real estate in mainland China. So definitely we were not uh, entrepreneurs, in terms of DNA, but I think one thing I would like to say is, it's the drive of not fearing of the future and trying to make the best out of what you've got, not you know, um, giving up. And for the sake of the livelihood of your family and your sons and daughters and your relatives, to go to somewhere where you know no one knows about, not knowing the language, the culture, and he really was uh, the pioneer of the family to break into the UK and I was obviously, um, raised and born in the, in the UK. My father was sent from Hong Kong to the UK in the 60s, 70s to run the business. And eventually we built up a big you know empire of restaurants and that went extremely well. So I was very lucky to, uh, have a good education in the UK. Um, and I started off first as a lawyer, um, which was, um, not my favorite profession. And, um, I then went on into finance, into investments, which we can, you know, talk a little bit more later. Um, and that's uh, a big turning point. And I think um, we just evolve as people in terms of uh, what career you do, what business you do. And I just fell in love with, you know, doing deals. Um, not necessarily. It's, it's it's not to do with the money, as we all know. Uh, entrepreneurship is the same as sports or music or art. It's um, It's something that you need to really love. You're really passionate. You get up, you know, very early. You do your things and you just don't want to sleep. You want to check your phone, your emails, your texts, the phone calls. Can I do a bit more? Can I improve myself? Can I learn from other people? And it's that passion um, that drives us is what I call entrepreneurship. It's not about, oh, I I have to hit, you know, $10 billion, $100 billion. It's not the money because money never drives what people do well. Um, passion does. It's the it's the love of what you're doing that makes us great in what you're doing. Um, did I miss anything?
0: No, f- fantastic uh, insight. I uh, I was just thinking about my own coat of arms. My family um tried to trace their ancestors back. By the name squib and we were a bit disappointed because apparently you go back 10 generations in my name and we were thieves and robbers in a village so <laughs> i was not as proud of my story as you are um and and so it's kind of amazing to have that kind of backstory on on, on your family history but and it must be so, of- so i'm just
1: to interrupt but um just to interrupt that that's a very good point um i think you know in asian culture we tend to hold a lot of um What's the word? We tend to hold a lot of um, what's the thing that prestige. you, know, you teach?
0: prestige? Prestige, is not pre- not not prestige? Let's say
1: our families go back a long way, we hate each other, right. And we keep that sort of like hatred towards each other. This sort of um, what would you call it? The um, your, the it, negativity of oh, your dad killed my dad, my granddad killed uh, your dad. There's all this like revenge thing,
0: does right? that, that, so, that exist? Uh, right? Sorry, there's, there's a lot of that in in culture in general, isn't there? Like you know, I guess that's, that's the what, Irish, I the Irish versus the really, British, or like you know the.
1: Yes, I, I don't even think it's an Asian thing. I think it's just human nature that we try to be, and you know, all the negative thoughts of us, you know, revenge, anger, all these negative thoughts, tends to like creep inside us like a virus, and it doesn't leave, and we get trapped in it, and then things get get worse. But what I'm trying to say here is, um, no matter what your previous person, you know, your father, your grandfather or whoever in different generations did to other people were, which were bad. The fact is you didn't do it mm. and you know and recognize that maybe there's something that people close to you or related to you by, by, by way of blood. And there was bad. then, you know, if people like myself who I call, you know, a friend, you know, I can't judge you what other someone else did mm. and I shouldn't, I shouldn't attach that to you. And, and, if that, and I think if people were able to adopt this kind of mentality, the world would be a better place. Mm.
0: It's interesting because I've always, um, I, when, I, when I was younger, I never realised, for example, that I was different from my family. I just assumed they were my family and we were all the same at our core because we were family. And as we grew up, I realised we actually had very different moral codes, even though we had the same parents, which I guess goes to show there's some natural instinct in you that, that perhaps gets cultivated by accident. But, but I, I think it's very interesting to look at family history I always craved a uh, a prestigious family history, especially when I would come across people that, you know, would talk about how their father was a lord or especially in England. That's very, you know, like my father's a lord. and My my grandfather was sir, blah, blah, blah. You know, you kind of crave that backstop that proves somehow that you're something, uh, someone interesting. And I came to terms with my own life that, you know, whatever my history was, I could rewrite it now in this time and, and make my name today with doing the right thing for example and treating people with respect and being honest and authentic right so so I mean there's something really interesting in what we're talking about here that might be useful to my audience it doesn't matter what your father did or what or what your mother did it really doesn't matter it matters what you do and how you cultivate your your personal brand and personal life right absolutely I I think one thing
1: that I would like to share with the audience I mean today I might go a bit off-tangent it's not just about entrepreneurship I wanted to just um, share some stories of myself. Hopefully, that can give some, you know, if not lessons to other people, maybe some entertainment. Um, so we come from a very traditional, you know, Asian family where generally the patriarch, i.e., my father, my grandfather, my great grandfather, the, the men, the men of the family would would tell what to do. And generally speaking, especially when not just my generation but the generations before it, generally the women. Would be um, you know second class in terms of their say and opinion, which hopefully we can change this through you know the the, the calls for diversity. But um, the example I wanted to give is that in Asian um, culture, we tend to the families, the parents, we'd like to push our children to become you know your doctors, your lawyers. You know, don't do sports, don't do art, just focus on studying, studying, studying. And I was just mentioning before that you know my first choice of a career was actually a lawyer because at that time, all the you know, parents of immigrants would would typically you know want your, your kid to be a, a doctor or a lawyer. So I thought, okay, I'm not sure, I'm not, 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 not really sure of what to pick or what to study. So I ended up studying law, um, and half of the reason, or even more than half of the reason was in, in order to please my parents that, oh, I'm doing law or medicine. I, I, I went to do law, I read law, I went on to do law school. I finished law school and then I went on and became a solicitor in Hong Kong and also in England and Wales. So I trained for two years and the first two years of working was fine because everything was new to me. So it was all novel. Um, I, I enjoyed working. But then once I got to the third, fourth year, I realized that the law, the legal industry was not for me because it was too restrictive. You have to follow these rules. There's no, you know, you don't call the shots. You're actually, uh, trying to resolve problems or help people plan of what to do instead of being the person who calls the shots. So that's when I decided that I needed to make a career change and the move into finance, but there's another story in that. But what I wanted to tell you and the audience is that, um, you know, your parents love you, they want the best for you. But my advice to a lot of people is you shouldn't just, you should respect your parents for what they've done for you, how they've raised you, gave you their upbringing, sent you to a good school, and whatever, whatever love or, or other things that they've done to you. But ultimately, the life is yours, so you have to make the choice that is best suited for yourself. And sometimes hard decisions could upset and in fact, be totally against what your father and your mother wants, or other people and your family members.
0: I, I really love this point you're making. Uh, actually, I think I think it's very important for people to pick up on the nuance of it. You know, at the end of the day, there will always be pressure for other people, uh, other people's pressure on you to do things. And I think it is important. I do think probably an entrepreneurial trait. If you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to learn to probably listen to yourself, listen to what matters to you, not be so influenced by anybody including family history you know and, and actually maybe look at what you're designed to do and what you enjoy to do and so when you became a lawyer was do you think it was pressure from the family or that was actually your personal instinct or do you think it was accidentally you were brainwashed into thinking that was what you should do because you could do it
1: it was a combination of different things it definitely wasn't my game plan it was because when i i went to a good boarding school in uh in the uk which i was on the board as a day boy but we had a, we had like, you know, these like career classes and you, you, you meet one of the, 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 the teachers who weren't really careers teacher. It was just like a side gig for them after school. And you speak, you basically spent literally 10 minutes with the guy and he'll say, okay, so Simon, what do you want to do? Right. And when you're a 16 year old kid or 15 year old kid and they ask you, you really don't really have an idea. Right. And at that time there was no internet mobile phone. You know, the library is not as accessible as it is today. So the knowledge was very, um, was very scarce. And on top of that, my parents or my, my family, they were not very well connected in the UK or understood English or things like that. So I didn't really have uncles or aunties to like get guidance from. Um, so it was just like basically me in the world. So I basically listened to the careers teacher and none of the stuff, what they said made any sense or, they cared in any way, right? They just wanted to go home. They're, they're just another nine to five guy. Right. But so, and I thought, okay, maybe medical medi- maybe medicine, maybe law. And I thought, okay, I don't really want to be a doctor. So I ended up just choosing law because it seemed, it seemed to be a good you know, profession. So I studied it. And then at uni, I did that for three years thinking, okay, it's okay. And I, I did well, I got a two one. Um, I actually only went to the library once during my whole time at university. Um, and that was the day of the induction week in week one, or day one, when you get everyone together. That's the first time I went to, to, to the to the, uh, to the library. And the reason for that is I'm a person who solves problems, and I just think exams are a waste of time. And I just do the bare minimum, or the quickest or fastest way of getting past the exam, which I did. So I ended up just partying and not doing much work during the first year, and then I wised up a little bit. During the second year, third year, i got my one, And I think, oh, okay, so what do I do next? So maybe 5% of the friends, the peers, they went off and did other things. And then the other 95% all registered and uh, applied to, to law school, which I then thought, okay, what am I going to do? So I ended up continuing because I didn't really know what to do. I was just following the path. Ended up doing law school and I finished it, it was done. And I thought, okay, next. And then what's everyone else doing? Everyone's applying to become a lawyer. And so I thought, okay, I'll start working now. So I started to apply. So I didn't, to be honest, when I was younger, I didn't think too much about, oh, I have to be the biggest lawyer. I have to be so successful. I knew that I'm on to do great things, but I really didn't really think too much about, you know, what am I actually going to be doing? I think in life, I just tried to do the best that I can. And if I've tried my best, then that's all I can do. And I'm a big believer in this. So the law was just, I guess, sort of kind of an accident. But I did as well as I could when I was doing it. I still got my two one, I did well, got a good, you know, law school degree and, and so on. But it's um but the problem with it is once you've started to have one step, two steps, three steps into this like forest of the law, it takes a long time to and sort of like walk back the damage that you've done. So luckily, because I changed quite early on in my career to say, "Law, it's not for me. I'm going to move." And the thing is, one of the entrepreneurial skills I think traits that I have is that I'm not afraid to own up that I've made a mistake, and I try and make things better. Right? There's a lot of friends. Um, there's a lot of friends of mine who were, you know, legal friends who studied law and law school with me. They all went on and. You know, work, yeah. they're now big partners of big firms like Link Leaders, good for Chance, all the big firms. But the problem for them is that they're all now very jealous mm-hmm. and envious that they're doing something that is paying them very well. Mm-hmm. They're very, they, they don't find it very passionate and engaging. Whereas I am doing what I want. I get to meet cool people in different countries, different disruptive business models, things that I want to do that helps change the world and do better and help more people. And they're just like writing documents, right? And they have to be on the clock all the time thinking, oh, how much should I, you know, how should I charge my clients? How many minutes every time I pick up the phone, I'm charging somebody, whereas I'm thinking, it's okay, you know, I can give you five days, seven days of my life, but I don't charge you anything. That's just, you know, something that's part of the whole, you know, due diligence or brainstorming session. So I'm very grateful that um, I went through the phase, but uh, I also call myself very fortunate and lucky to be able to have ventured out and left the law for good.
0: I think I mentioned on on your podcast show that um, I was also, I guess, accidentally manipulated into thinking I should be a lawyer. And so a bit like you at 16, I was 15, you know, you kind of discover who you are and I didn't become a lawyer Um, and and I'm I'm glad. But it's interesting because I think when you're young anyway, and and this might be, I mean, this is certainly my cultural experience in England – that being a lawyer was considered a very prestigious thing and still is, actually, I think. The idea of being a well-paid lawyer, you know, and you know, maybe a TV V programmes have glamorized it a bit, you know, but standing up and defending someone who's innocent and, you know, the excitement of all that and then the reality of it. But the point, you know, I think that's very interesting you're talking about, which is useful for my audience to pick up on, is that you know, you're talking about now understanding this concept of buying time, not selling time. Whereas a lawyer in the end, and I, I know a few, you know, and, and I know one who still likes it, but I know one who's totally miserable. And, and it's miserable because his life has got more and more expensive, but his ability to charge an hourly rate that's more and more it has got harder. So in other words, when he was young, he was earning lots. As he got older, his capacity to earn has gone down, but his lifestyle costs have gone up. So the pressure on him to work more has gone up and that's the opposite to an entrepreneur i think what we try to do is work very hard at the beginning in the hope that eventually we don't have to work as hard if we don't want to right and i think that is the appeal of entrepreneurship right
1: i think i think i think something that i'm still struggling with simon and this is uh, something that i think the audience should think about is as an entrepreneur the difficulty of being an entrepreneur is to having the balance of life mm. um i still struggle Um, to be able to you know work eight hours play eight hours and then sleep eight hours it's usually you know working 16 or 20 hours but you know i'm not complaining of the long hours because it's something that you enjoy it's like if you like if you like playing video games or you're in the band the hours just go by once you keep on playing your guitar you're you're playing video games and for i think for entrepreneurs is we don't mind talking to people, we don't mind reading up, we don't mind thinking, we don't mind being on the plane or the train, or no, I guess you know during COVID, maybe not, but you don't complain of advancing your company or your business or your project or yourself. But I think it, it's a
0: really good analogy because I think it gets harder. You can When you're in your 20s and you're single, playing in a band is fine, um, you know. And then now we're talking about the downsides of entrepreneurship. It's very interesting. It's like the work-life balance that seems to come up a lot in every conversation, I think, about entrepreneurship. What is the work-life balance to get there? But the whole concept you're playing in a band, when you have a, a, a partner... You know, you can't go play all night in a band and come back at three in the morning and not see them all day. Equally, when well, you have kids, I've got a three-year-old, you know, there's no way I could go play in a band all night, right? It's going to be a problem. Um, well, Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger's
1: broken the, uh, what you're talking about. He's gone on, done what he did since he was 20, and he's still very successful.
0: Say that again, sorry. Mick, Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger, well, you know, maybe... um, Well, that's a very interesting example as well, you know, taking the analogy to another level. But
1: it's a a very... I'm joking, but that's a bit of an extreme example whereby... But the problem with Mick Jagger is he's probably hurt. I mean, I don't know Mick myself. Sorry, Mick for saying this, but I think... I think he's hurt a lot of family members along the way probably so yeah. you know you can't you can't win every, every in every part of the way something has to give and something has to sacrifice well I think I think
0: what you're talking about maybe the takeaway um, I want the audience to think about I, I from what you're saying is um there's an element of like what makes it justifiable to spend this amount of time working on something as you develop as an entrepreneur I think the word purpose comes into play and makes it sustainable so I my son this morning made me almost cry because like daddy can you take me to the zoo today and i'm like no i've got to go interview an entrepreneur who's going to share his amazing knowledge and hopefully will help 10 people today have a better life going forward you know like but he have to have that purpose to justify that you know i hopefully i didn't hurt him and when he listens to this podcast later when he's 20 and listens to this podcast hopefully he'll realize i'm doing it for something bigger than both of us and so but that that purpose becomes important doesn't it and, and i think that's a, that's an element I, of it I,
1: I think what you should have said, Simon, is um, "Son, coronavirus. The zoos, is, the zoos are closed right now." So yeah. you should, I did I also say do. that,
0: but I'm a bit scared to make him scared of coronavirus, and so I, I'm being a bit cautious. <laughs> and uh, yeah. but I know what you mean I, I have a, I've tried to approach coronavirus to him and then the next day he's running away from people saying oh my god they've got coronavirus I'm like don't be scared of people you know yeah. but um, but I know what you mean is there's always I mean being a parent that's a whole different level I'm learning I'm learning all the time and that, that goes back to ancestors that no one can ever get it right you're always gonna muck up your children somehow I'm sure but um but back to sometimes you have to be selfish right and you have to like Mick Jagger's probably being selfish he loves what he does he loves going on stage he was criticized a lot for you know, being 65 and running around on the stage like a teenager, but he loves it. So that that's what he has to do to stay sane, right? Absolutely. And I think
1: also, um, I guess, the the difficult part of the argument is also he's also providing a lot of entertainment to you yeah. know, millions of fans globally.
0: Yeah, it makes people smile and makes people happy and feel good about themselves. And so, yeah, I think it's a really interesting analogy. Do you think that your um, your career is quite common? Do you think, you know, this path that you've taken – I mean, I definitely think, uh, um, that, for example, I've got a friend who was a barrister in Hong Kong and um, he uh, was a very successful barrister and he wanted to quit being a barrister to become a photographer. And he was pulled uh, aside um, by the chief justice there and said, you could have my job one day. What are you doing? You know, going to do this photography rubbish. Um, and and there was a lot of pressure for him to stay. I mean, do you think that's quite a common problem in, in society now?
1: In terms of what, which part that to, to change careers, even when you're good at something? Yeah, I
0: guess when you said you weren't going to be a lawyer anymore, I mean your parents, your 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 no, peers. Okay. Yeah. okay, understand.
1: So I, I I would say this. I think actually this problem is or this challenge a lot of people face actually is a very common problem. I think a lot of people in my position probably would not have had the courage to change. People don't like to change that much. People don't like to change or get away from the comfort zone and i think entrepreneurs have this i'm not saying that i'm great or whatever all this kind of stuff i think entrepreneurs have this trait whereby um, they're more risk-taking i think they're more it's not because they're they're brave or they're more courageous i think sometimes they end up they don't really think as much about what happens if i jump off the window they just jump right I think um, I had a conversation with a lawyer friend recently, maybe like a month ago in Hong Kong. And he was saying to me that um, as a lawyer, he was like a very, he was a veteran lawyer. And he was saying he he, he and accountants, he was just saying lawyers and accountants can never be good entrepreneurs because of the training and the way they've been working, the way they've been practiced and working 10 hour days in their field, they become too conservative. By the time you think 10 hours, 10 days, 10 months of how conservative not parking on a double yellow line, the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur guy has already made $10 million. Right. So I think the difference is, you know, you, if you don't step away and just, you know, it's, it's it's very easy for you and me just to keep on talking about it. But I think until you've made the step away from being a salaried person to becoming an entrepreneur, that you really have to do certain things is you don't, really, if you don't make the jump, you don't really see it. I guess it's a little bit like when you're a child, you don't really know what happens when you're 25 or when you become a father and you don't really know what it feels like to be a father until you actually become the father. Yeah.
0: So hard to explain it. That's so true, yeah. And that's part of why, and I know we're aligned on this, you know, it's part of why I, I want people to experience entrepreneurship, even if they don't end up being entrepreneurs for life, it is an amazing experience to take something from your mind and make it real. And, and so it's, it shows you how powerful your mind is. The Everything around us is created by a human mind, um, pretty much. Uh, okay, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example, Simon, of something
1: that I always tell my, my colleagues and my staff, which is, you know, people are so, especially junior people, a lot of the time people are so, um, they're so engaged about what their title is. And what the name card says right i guess when you get to a senior position you sort of don't care as much because you've already got your reputation and so on to be honest i don't really care about the title or what university you went to it's it's a you know what this person whether it's male or female and what they're going to do and i always say this to people like if you see you know a dog poo in your office and it's in the middle of the floor and you walk past it, and then somebody says, oh, why why didn't you pick it up, right? If I see the dog poo, whether I'm the chairman or the CEO or the accounts manager or the toilet cleaner, if I see it, I'm going to pick it up, right? And I'll throw it away. I'm not going to say, oh, just because I'm the chairman, I'm not going to do it. It's just the same thing as at home. Um, If you see a mess, you know, something that's blocking the stairways and you can't go upstairs, you know, do you, your wife, your son or whoever, when they see that, do they say, oh, it's not my job. I'm not going to do it. And, and I think the thing about entrepreneur I, I, and why am I saying this is because, it, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you don't classify yourself with all these titles and what you're doing and what you're not doing. It's whatever the problem or issue or challenge is in front of you, you get rid of it. Whatever title you it may be, you might not want to do it, but you might get some of your staff to do it or whatever. But the thing is, you're an entrepreneur. And as the entrepreneur, I think the most important thing is ownership. Mm. And it's not the ownership of, you know, the shares or the stocks of the company. It's the ownership of the whole thing. You're like the father, the grandfather, you're, 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 the, you're the leader of the pack and you have to get rid of the problems, whether it's the dog poo or whatever it may yeah. be. And I think if you adopt this mentality, then that's what I call entrepreneurship.
0: Yeah. I like it and completely agree. And I think for the audience listening, it's, it's gold. Um, and I, I always say when I meet a founder, they're not CEO or whatever title. They're, they're chief persistence officer. I mean, that's really what they are. I mean, it's just about pushing through and pulling pulling. Pulling people with you and putting clients in and making relationships and, and pushing through, you know, that's, that's the job title that matters, not not the, any fancy title that anyone wants to give themselves. People are too obsessed with job titles, and I, and I, I couldn't agree more that it really doesn't matter. But equally, I mean, I, I, I think there are a lot of people that um, aren't necessarily willing to do what it takes. And like you say, they, they see themselves as above the menial tasks, and, and, and actually, the menial tasks are actually very important the little details in any business that often makes it successful. Zero to one of building a business is all about doing all the small things that no one else wants to do. That's why why big companies end up buying these companies because they can't do the zero to one because there's not enough people that are willing to do the, the little bits and pieces that make a business work and start, right? Absolutely. Well, tell us about your, your, kind of your early investment uh, phase. Well, you know, how did you make decisions for people listening that want to raise money, for example? You know, what do you look for in people? What's, what's the investment criteria and any, anybody stands out as examples to you? Okay, great
1: question. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it in two, two phases. The first phase is when I first started out um, in terms of from finance point of view, I actually tried to raise money for some of my companies. Um, and this was like, you know, maybe like 20 years ago, 17 years ago. I mean, I had the idea of two things. I actually had the idea of like Facebook or a social media platform in the day, you know, in the early 2000s. But just because I didn't have the technical know-how, I didn't know the right people at the time. I didn't have the money or access to the money. I didn't really know what was going on, but I knew that that's where the direction was going. Anyway, I was a bit ahead of the time. It never, it never um, materialized. The second one was I I really saw that there would be like mobile content when mobile, the iPhone, that was maybe like 2007, 2008. That's when I first like ventured into like mobile gaming, mobile content. But again, um, the bandwidth speeds and the phone speeds were just not fast enough to do what we're doing today. And it was a bit too early in that. So it's not just about having the ideas. It's also about being the right time at the right place, the right place at the right time. But in terms of like what, what kind of people we invest in right now is entrepreneurs, are for me, are the most important people on the planet. And I would not classify myself as an entrepreneur. I have an entrepreneurial mind. I have an entrepreneurial spirit, but I'm, a, I'm more of a financier. So I actually finance, I invest into entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are the guys who change the world. They're the ones with crazy ideas and make it happen. A lot of crazy ideas never get to where they get to in terms of commercialization. But in terms of like 100 ideas, maybe one becomes Facebook or you know, um, Instagram. But um, entrepreneurs are the guys that change the world. And we as financiers only help them to accelerate or push them along their, their um, journey. But there's two things that I look for in entrepreneurs. The first one is ability which is the ability, not just about knowing about tech or science or biotech, it's ability to solve problems as, as we discussed earlier, ability to make things happen. And then the second thing, which is even more important than ability is integrity. It has to be people that you can trust in terms of ability, but more importantly is the integrity. Can I trust this person that he or she will not steal money? that will be able to segregate that this is company's interest and not their own interest. And it's the right person to drive that thing forward. And if they don't have that integrity, I've no real interest to, to talk further. So those are my two main traits that I look for in entrepreneur.
0: Really good tips for anyone out there uh, trying to raise money that might think it's about their idea or, or any of that stuff, even their track record. I think integrity is so important. I, I translate it into moral code. It's it also my number one criteria for getting involved with anyone, be it an investment or a partner or, or anything. It's so undervalued. And I think people that don't um, work hard to do the right thing um, deserve to fail. I think that the only thing you can take with, your, you, take with you when you leave this world is your reputation. And so that's what you leave for your children. And, and back to kind of what we were saying earlier, no matter what we want to say about it, there is a reputational link to whatever your parents did. Um, I've got a good friend who, um, whose who's, uh, um, mother was the second from last person to be hanged in the UK. And wow. it comes up every time you Google his name. You know, so so it's interesting. We're kind of looping back to what we were saying earlier, but the, but there is always. I mean, I just think integrity for your own self. I want my son, for example, to be proud of his father, and I want him to to have a good example to, to to live by. And so, you know, it's important to me that I always do the right thing. But I am shocked how many people don't live this way, and I always assume other people are like this. And 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 they're not. But I, I agree with you. It's such an important piece, and people don't put it clearly into their decks, right? How do you decide on someone's integrity? How do you how do you find out about that before you invest in them?
1: Um, typically, you know, pre COVID, you know, we have to go and spend some. We have to spend time with the people. Um, we now obviously do Zoom calls, video calls, but you know, typically they're they're not good enough. Um, I need to feel their body language, the way they talk, their eyes. You know, obviously, different cultures have different um, ways of expressing themselves. So, I guess it's also a, a combination of doing this for the last twenty years. It's helped me to uh, gauge and to know more. And then, obviously, I'm not uh, expert on, on all things. Just con men, con women all around the world. But it's um, and also asking around, um, knowing their friends, their contacts, previous people that have had have done deals with them, and that's just ways of mitigating, but you'll never be 100% sure of who's really trustworthy or not.
0: Yeah, I think that personal connection, um, I just um, hired someone for, for our organization and uh, you know, I had to meet them. I think we probably broke some COVID rule, but I had to meet them. You know, I, I just don't feel that's replaceable. You can't get to yeah. know someone, no matter how sincere they sound over a computer, until as you say, you, you, you test in with your gut on their, um, their aura. And so, and people don't listen to that enough. I mean, I've definitely made mistakes. I've, I've hired people that have stolen from me and all sorts of things. And, and you know, it, it, you make mistakes. And I think that's how you learn as well, right? That's how you learn to listen to your gut.
1: One thing that, that's quite interesting, Simon, like to share with you in Hong Kong recently, we tried to hire a few people. And we're actually hiring quite a lot of people. One of the persons was like a digital media assistant. Um and we 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 hired them, it was on Zoom. I was I think I was in the UK at the time, so I did the Zoom interviews so my other um, colleagues interviewed them as well. They they signed a contract they've done and they're supposed to report to Judy in December. And um we couldn't the, the person didn't turn up. It was a girl, she was like maybe thirty, experienced digital media, um, and then she didn't show up. We couldn't contact her by phone, by WhatsApp, by you know, by by, by anything. And she just she just disappeared. So she even like blocked, you know, the phone numbers of the office calling, you know, are you coming? And she didn't bother to reply saying, I'm not not coming, I'm not taking the job offer. And I just find um, it's so shocking, um, this kind of behavior. And I'm not sure if this is a generation thing or what it is, but all you could have just said is, You know, if you don't have the guts to call in, you just write in and say, you know, sorry, I found another job. Good luck or take care or whatever. But they just took so many steps to not answer or get back to us. You know, you know, we've made plans and then we have to, you know, go again to, you know, hire more people and just takes time. It just altered everyone's expectations and plans.
0: It's interesting. This is one of the things I I, um, I was going to talk to you a little bit about cultural experience because you called yourself an international citizen. I do describe myself the same way. I sometimes get confused on where I'm from because, as you know, uh, I spent 20 years in Hong Kong and I've spent 20 years in, in England. I grew up in England, so I consider myself English, but I've, been expe- I've experienced the world, so I, I am confused about where, I, where I'm from. But I, I think there's a really interesting thing I noticed between Hong Kong and England, employment-wise. In Hong Kong, there seems to be a very, a very um, weak link on reference checks, which I think Hong Kong needs to tighten up on. So, for example, in England, if someone lets you down and does something wrong, the reference check is pretty thorough. You don't hire someone until you've done reference checks. But I don't know, the un- unemployment rate is so low in Hong Kong. Sometimes it's so hard to find good people. There's almost like, oh, we found someone that can do that. Let's hire them. I'm not saying that's what you did, but there's certainly I did that. And, and sometimes you don't even get a reference check. And also, also that you're not allowed to say something negative about anyone. So, so there's kind of this whole, you don't want, and also in culture, I think in Asia more than anywhere else, you don't want to hurt someone. So you don't want to give them a negative reference and hurt their career or their life. But there's a reference check problem there. Because if you had a proper reference check system, you'd probably so – she's done that to someone else. You know, there's, that's not – you're not the first time that's happened, right? So, so it's kind of a waste of everyone's time, including hers, which is bizarre. But I, I've had that experience you've just talked about many times. And I think my English listeners or American listeners might not necessarily understand. And do you think it is the reference check that's the problem? Is there something there?
1: No, I don't. Actually, to be honest, I don't think, it, don't think it is. I think two points. The first point is, Simon, that, that's a business idea there. Mm. I think there's a problem. So obviously entrepreneurs are guys to solve the problems. And if you solve the problems, then you think about ways how you monetize it. So that's one example. But I think regarding this, no, I don't think so. I think it's a a generation thing. I think it's got to a stage where um, I'm generalizing. Hopefully I'm not offending anyone. but, But like a lot of young people nowadays, when they socialize, when they date, when they talk to people, they have to do it via messaging. Right, It's they easier to, to cut it, off from people it.
0: now. It's easy, It's easier right? just to ignore. Maybe it's easier, isn't it? Yeah, Listen. yeah. No, the,
1: the, the thing is, like, if, you, if you're dating somebody and you want to break up with a girl or vice versa, mm-hmm. you no longer have to, like, you know, sit them down and say, oh, sorry, but, you know, I don't think it's working. Send See a you text. later. Right? Because people don't like to own up and face difficult situations. But now you know, people used to maybe go on the phone and say, that. sorry, Simon, I want to break up with you, right? Yeah. Now it's just, I'm Ghost- on Instagram I or Facebook, right? Yeah. And they just disappear from your life because people just don't have, um, they just don't have the courage just to own up and face up the issues. And it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, I, I guess maybe we're a bit old fashioned and older to think that, you know, that should be the right thing to do, which is just, I'm sorry, I, I, I messed up, you know, can we move on? Mm. But people just want to like hide away and just run away, and, and that's just the wrong way to approach things.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting... Uh, and like you say... In a problem is a business opportunity because my, my next question for you is going to be i know you can see the future and i i mean I'm, i want my listeners to get to know you uh, through this podcast and hopefully through the links below but i know your reputation you've got a fantastic reputation you're a very hard-working sincere person who's helped a lot of people out in their businesses but i was interested because i know you can see the future of what you think um, what good future businesses might be i know a lot of my listeners um, want to start a business but ideas aren't don't come to them easily um, so any any thoughts on what the future might look like what businesses you're looking at now that that you think are really exciting areas? Do you think there's any one particular area you think people should focus on going forward? Sure. In terms of
1: themes, what we're looking at right now is, you know, a lot of it's tech-related. You know, one of our missions of the family office now is we want to invest into projects which have positive influence and positive impact. So we don't touch things like arms, um, tobacco, um, illegal drugs like um, THC, cannabis, marijuana. Um, so we want to try and invest, make money, but on top of that, hopefully we can help society and the planet. So obviously things like clean tech, um, green finance, blockchain is something we like a lot. AI, um, and we're just looking at various forms of like you know electric battery cars and and, and tech tech for for motorbikes, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very big in sort of like emerging markets. Also, the U.S. has been very hot in terms of the stock market. So those are areas that we like to. But one thing I, I like to share with you in terms of like the early stage newbies in terms of uh, entrepreneurs is that, you know, with a phone nowadays, with an iPhone or Android phone nowadays, with your computer, with the Internet, anyone can be an entrepreneur. So that's the beauty of the Internet is that anyone become, can become an entrepreneur now. However, the downside of all this is that because it's so easy for anyone to pick up the phone, install an app, do a website, the other problem is the entry barrier is actually very low. And in order to succeed, in my opinion, not necessarily as an entrepreneur, but in anything in life, you've got to do three things, right? You've got to be maybe the first to do something, or you've got to be the best doing something, or three, which is easier, is be be different. So be the best, be the first, or be different. And someone like me, I'm usually not the first person to do something. I'm also not the best person to, to do something. So what all I can do personally myself is I do things differently, slightly differently. And you don't have to be the first or the best. If you alter it a little bit, then maybe you have the best business model. Because I remember like Facebook, Instagram, Google—all these companies—they were never the first companies. I think Amazon might be one of the first companies. But as you go along, you've also seen that all the big giants in terms of tech—they've um, all evolved in their history. So Amazon was just selling books; now it sells everything. But they're actually making the most money from their cloud services. Nokia did phones; they went busts, and you know they're, they're not doing well. But when they first started, they were actually—I think—they were manufacturing uh, rubber boots. Um, so it just shows you that as an entrepreneur, you also have to keep evolving and it's the skill of seeing what's in front of you and trying to adapt to fit your current business into the new one before you get left
0: behind Again, a, a diamond piece of insight there, you know I think a lot of people do think they need to create some original idea instead of like evolving existing ideas out there, maybe doing them better or doing them in your own way it doesn 't even have to be better sometimes. just you know something you 're passionate about, for example, can beat someone that 's not passionate about that subject but doing it you know? so it 's a, a really good point uh, that 's another thing I noticed um, culturally you know living in different parts of the world. I noticed in in Asia a lot of the big businesses were you know we're, we're multi-company um businesses so for example um you know i know uh you know uh, people that Started the lift business, they made a lot of money in making lifts, and then they diversified and got into the shipping business, and then they diversified, and, and and that's not how it is in England. In England, they tend to be you know focused on one business. You know they're shipbuilding, and that's what they do. You know, um, and and so it was quite interesting for me to see the Asian culture and the way it diversified. And and do you, and I wanted to ask you not only what do you think of those two strategies as far as building a business is concerned. Is it good to do the the diverse business or is it good to focus? And second. Do, do you, you know when people ask you where you're from or who, who you are? Do, do you find yourself uh, struggling to identify where you're from and who you are? Okay,
1: two great questions, Simon. Um, I'll talk about the identity question um, secondly. I'll talk about the first one first. I always think that diversity um, is a better way of doing it than to focus. So um, I, I would say that in life, in your career as a business, you either have a generalist or specialist. So that's sort of like the focus point myself. I'm a specialist generalist. So I know a lot about different things, but I'm not a specialist in any one of the different things. And I think that broad knowledge helps me to connect different dots. And that's why we invest into you new know, clean tech or blockchain or ai and we see you sort of like the new technology coming so that's what i would call myself i think the evolution as i mentioned earlier is very important not just as in business because if you don't think on your feet and you don't know what's coming and you don't change then you could be out of a business like kodak or nokia all these guys being too arrogant a lot of the times is the downfall of all of these companies? Like I think Steve Ballmer said in Microsoft that they thought the iPhone being six hundred bucks, they can't even is the hand of Apple kind of thing, and then Nokia also thinking that because they're selling much more phones than the iPhone, they just didn't see this whole thing coming, and this arrogance stopped people like that from from moving forward. But. Um, I think in in Asia and in the West, the biggest difference is in Asia, a lot of the families have made money because they ended up having monopolies. And I think in the West, because of the laws and the antitrust laws that we have in, in Europe and also especially in the US, it's very difficult for one family or one conglomerate to control one particular segment. But, you know, for example, in Korea, your Samsungs, your Hyundais, they do everything from, you know aer- aeronautical to to electronics to shipping to real estate um, and they control so many different things and because they have the monopoly over certain industries what they were able to do is they use money to basically buy away and pressure away all the smaller players and that's the only way that they were able to do so in my opinion
0: but anyway um I, I think uh, I could actually talk to you um all day Uh, you've got so much knowledge and and so many insights i I really i really enjoy talking to you i guess i I wanted to uh well i'd love to have you back and maybe we should do a co-host podcast or or two together um i would love to i'd love to have you back i've got so many questions i haven't had a chance to ask you but i guess i wanted to go uh, ask one final question to cap off today's podcast with you and that that would be if you went back to your younger self and, and gave some advice what would it be
1: that's a good question. Um, before I answer that, let me let me answer the other question, which I, I didn't get a chance to talk about, which I can sort of like weave back into this, is the identity issue. So that's a really interesting question about the identity. And still to this day, I haven't been able to figure out the question is, right? Or the, the answer. And, you know, I, I come from a long list of Hong Kong Chinese families. So we've been 18 generations in Hong Kong before that we were in Guangdong province canton to you some of you who don't know the name and then before Guangdong province we were in Shandong province and before that in Henan province so we're from the Hakka uh, group of people so we speak a different dialect to the Cantonese and Mandarin people but you know obviously I know Cantonese and Mandarin as well but um, so when I grew when I was born and raised in in the UK so but at home we only spoke in Hakka dialect. My parents didn't really speak English well at the time. So when I first went to school, uh, I was four years old in Belfast, and everyone is not Chinese, they're all, you know, Irish boys and girls. And on the day of school, I was bullied. I was like beaten up by you know four or five kids. I was crying and didn't enjoy school. I got into a lot of fights. And you know, they were speaking to me in English, I was speaking to them in in Hakka and it was just, you know, in, in Chinese, we, we, we call it uh, which means chicken talks to ducks, right? Mm-hmm. And and the interesting thing is I'm thinking, why am I being beaten up? And essentially it's just ignorance. And the ignorance is um, they they don't know who I am and I don't know who they are, right? So I never really uh, saw you know, um, Irish people. It was just, I was just with the family when I was young. It was the first time that I engaged with the English language. And obviously I picked it up very quickly because I was young, but then I would always struggle when I was younger because my father would always say, you know, Hong Kong's great. Hong Kong's this Hong Kong's that, but I never really knew anything about Hong Kong until I sort of got older. when I, I used to visit once in a while, every two or three years to my grandparents who were in Hong Kong at the time. And I had this like cultural, um, mismatch the identity, thinking, am I Irish? Am I British? Am I Chinese? Am I Hong Kong? So ethnically, of course, I'm Chinese. But I grew up in in Ireland, in Northern Ireland. So when I went, so my dream was always, I have to go back to Hong Kong. And when I say go back, I would say go back even though I never came from Hong Kong originally in that sense. So my dream was I had to go to Hong Kong. I had to find out what my roots are, how great it is. But the interesting thing is, as soon as I left university and law school, I went to Hong Kong. I started my job. Then I realized that I actually don't really belong in Hong Kong because the people in Hong Kong, even though they looked like me in terms of the skin color, they would judge me and think, he's he, he, he's like a banana, right? And the banana means like white in the inside, yellow on the outside. Huh right? So the local Hong Kong guys are thinking, oh, you're you're another guaylo, another like white guy, right? But you look like, you know, a Chinese guy. So they weren't racist in that they were, you know, beating me up or verbally abusing me. But again, there was, uh, there was, uh, they treated you differently. They looked at you in a different way. So when I'm in the, the UK, people are thinking, okay, you're not really British. When I'm in Hong Kong, you're not really from Hong Kong. And then when I go to China, oh, you're from Hong Kong, right? So wherever I went, I wasn't really accepted. Right. And that's just the story of my life. But as I got older, as I tried to evolve and as an investor entrepreneur, I now turned it around. And now when I'm in UK, I'm the China expert. When I'm in Hong Kong, I'm the guy who speaks really good English, understands us listing rules, structures, deals, which are global. When I'm in China, I'm now the UK Hong Kong expert. So, I, so this is a great case of how I turned a negative situation into a positive one. So always have hope, never, you know, give up. And, you know, you can turn things around always. I think and advice, sorry, sorry Before you
0: tell me the advice of your younger self, I just want to kind of say something about what you've just said there. Um, that I want the audience to, to pick up on, because I, I know a lot of my audience may also feel that they're different. Maybe they were bullied, maybe they were teased because they're different. What is true from what? What's just been said there, and from my own personal experience as well, is that your differences can be your superpowers later. So, you know, when you're younger, you want to fit in, I guess. You don't want to stand out, but later you'll want to stand out. And whatever makes you different will make you stronger later.
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I I don't, I don't, I don't have regrets in my life. So I live by my life philosophy, which is learn if it's if it is your first day and live as if it is your last day. So, you know, if we, if we try our best in whatever we do, I I always say this, like life is like a game of poker. We're dealt a, a set of hand, a hand of cards. You play to the best ability of what you have in your own hand. You don't compare to anything you know, what Simon has or the other players have. You can't compare to whose parents that you were born with, which country you are born with. You just have to play the best hand that you've been dealt with. And if you've tried your best, that's all you can do. I guess my advice to myself is I probably should have let go of a lot of the hatred or the negativity that I experienced from the racism and the bullying when I was younger, when it was not my fault, but it was somebody else's fault. But I'm also grateful to some of the people that actually did cause, you know, physical and verbal abuse that has actually made me much stronger. And I think without them, I might I might be a lot more um, ordinary.
0: Mm. You are far from ordinary and uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. And I I love the way you think and the way you work. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast and, and share your story um, I hope to have you back on. As I say, I've got a load of questions that I haven't had time to ask you today. I'd love to have you back on. And I um, I know you're in London at the moment. Um, thanks to COVID, we can't meet, but I hope when you're back, we can. And I'll come and see you in Hong Kong and hopefully we can go for a hike around the peak and talk about that beautiful city and uh, and catch up again. But thank you today for coming on and sharing your story. Thank you, Simon. Um, great
1: work that you're doing. I'm glad to be part of it. I hope we can inspire and help more people. And if everyone anyone has any questions, please feel free to email, text or whatever to Simon or myself. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to the Purposeful Project podcast today. If you got any value from this podcast, then do feel free to give us a review and give us your feedback. And if you think anybody out there might enjoy this story of this real life successful entrepreneur, then feel free to share. And of course, go and visit purposefulproject.com and join our main list at any point. Thanks again for listening.